Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Over the last four or five months, a virus that seems to have originated in the central Chinese city of Wuhan has spread with lightning speed around the world. Uh, This global COVID-19 pandemic has triggered an intense debate about globalization. Some people think, and and people have been on the show talking about this, is it the beginning of our 21st century uh, Asian world, or is it the beginning of the end of globalization itself? Um, As always with these big themes, it's really good to get a historical perspective. They're the wise ones. They're the ones who are able to establish some distance between the the immediacy of today's crisis and the history history of of, of human beings. Um, Valerie Hansen is the Stanley Woodward Professor of History at Yale. That's That's a real big deal. And she's the author of a really interesting and important new book, The Year 1000, When Explorers Connected the World and Globalization Began. Uh, Valerie, that's a modest claim. Globalization began in the year 1000. Uh, Well, I think the key word in the title is began. It's the beginnings of globalization. But it is, it is when you can see, and my definition of globalization is when events in one country affect another and the people who are living in that other country have no control over these events. And usually economic, right? That there is a demand for some commodity that um, the people in, there's the mother country and then there's the supplying country. And so the impact on the people in the supplying country is real. And they have no control over it. And they're suddenly find themselves working full time to produce this item for people living quite far away. And your your work is in its own way a polemic, at least within um, within uh, amongst historians themselves, because in the beginning of your book, you suggest that it that the year 1492 has been kind of overrated. Most historians think of 1492 or the 15, the late 15th century as being the time when globalization began. But you choose 1,000. So before we get to what happened in the year 1,000, uh, what happened in 1492? In 1492, two new routes were opened up. One is across the Atlantic. Columbus opens it up. The other one is um, along the West African coast, and da Gama opens it up. Uh, And that, I think, because if we're focusing on Europe, those are major events. But by looking at just those two routes, we missed that there were a lot of connections around the rest of the world. And uh, the most important route that's in use at that time goes all the way from East Africa, so the opposite coast that Da Gama sailed down. Uh, And uh, so from East Africa up to the Islamic world, to India, to Southeast Asia, and then on to China. 
and and what you argue in 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 your book in 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 the year a thousand um it wasn't so much the europeans who connected the world it was the chinese it was traders and explorers from the middle east as well as vikings so it's a different set of actors right right except of course the vikings are north europeans but um yes some of the key players and the polynesians do a lot of sailing in the pacific uh and connect islands that are hugely distant from one another so yes there's a, a whole different set cast of characters so uh, and and I, and I ask this question with respect valerie so what who cares <laughs> uh well you know i think it's very important but I, I think the main reason it matters is that we live in a world now where uh i do, i agree with you said to some of your earlier interviews that um things are changing and that uh countries that haven't been that important are going to become more important uh and that it's a more polycentric world a world a world with multiple different centers and the world of the year 1000 is a lot like that so i think by looking more at the world in the year 1000 we can better understand the world we're living in now if we look at the world in 1492 or 1500 every time there's an encounter you know the answer the europeans are going to win they've got the guns they have the cannon it it may take them a while it takes them i think it takes nearly a century before they can um invade the canary islands but in the end they're always going to prevail that in the year 1000 we don't know who's going to win and i think that's the world we're living in and we're going into uh post covid Uh, 19 in our pre-interview conversation you warned me that you 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 weren't so good at talking about the impact of your book or the meaning of your book in the contemporary age but i i think you just um you just offered a, a really fascinating observation that uh that uh 2020 looks a lot more like the year 1000 than 1492 right right that's exactly right Um I will I will because presumably this is an interview and I'm not just supposed to say that's exactly right. Uh I will give you an example that uh in Greenland the Norse go to Greenland and they have two settlements on southern Greenland the Vikings go and it's it, it, they go from Greenland to Canada uh in the year 1000. Uh the interesting thing is at the same time that the Norse are traveling to southern Greenland uh in northern Greenland uh, a people are have come all the way across North America starting in Alaska and traveling through northern Canada who are called the experts call them the Thule T H U L E I I think most Americans would read it including me as Thule until one of my colleagues made fun of me and uh the um Thule are in northern Greenland and they're the ancestors of the Inuit and they have a they have mastered the technology of how to hunt baby seals they can and it's a food source that lasts year round and that technology allows them to move from northern greenland all the way down to southern greenland and eventually evict uh the vikings so that's a good example of a of an encounter where somebody actually beats the europeans someone who, a non-european indigenous people beats the europeans uh those people's of course of the year 2000 of uh, the year 1000 didn't have the internet they didn't have all the globalizing technology of today in your studies of this period how do you think 
their travels and their discovery of the world or a much larger world than, than their traditional societies that are originally known? How did that change the way they thought about themselves, their societies, and foreigners? You know, I think discovering you have neighbors or you are not alone on the planet is a huge discovery. And um, the impact is probably, that's the greatest impact right there. Oh, we're not alone. There are people out there. Uh, There are the people who know the most about the rest of the world. And actually the world that they know about is Afro-Eurasia. So, uh, you know, Africa, Europe, and Asia are the people writing in Arabic, the the, uh, geographers of the Islamic world. And they, I I was going to say they have a lot of information, but they also have a lot of mistakes. And, And one of the things that we can see is that disinformation can, or misinformation can travel um, very quickly also. And so there's a great book. One of the, I thought, most interesting sources I found is a book in Arabic. It's a slave buyer's guide um, to be used in the markets of Baghdad. The author is a Christian who lives in Baghdad, then the uh, center, one of the centers of the Islamic world. And he describes all the different slaves that are in the market. And some of them are from Africa, we would expect that, but there's some from Northern and Eastern Europe, and mm. there are also some from Central Asia. That comes as more of a surprise to everybody. And he tells you about the characteristics that people from any given country have, and he makes mistakes. So, and he's the kind of thinking that people um, are engaging in is they're the Geographers believe that there are seven climatic zones. They call them climes. And uh, he says, for example, that women from Russia um, don't make good slaves because they don't uh, menstruate. So therefore, they can't reproduce. So, you know, there's a um, I think but I think the key thing is just realizing there are people out there and they're different. Uh, One of the things that happens when people discover that is that there are different religions and one of the big changes that happens in the year 1000 is people switch. Rulers of small little countries decide that um, it's better to associate themselves with a major religion than it is to just continue whatever worshiping whatever traditional deities they worship. Yeah, your book is, is really fascinating. One of the things I learned from it is that the reason we call Poles and Russians and Czechs Slavs is from the word slaves because the quote unquote slabs were um were 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 very uh, I don't know what I guess they, they they made good slaves or they were easy to catch and buy and sell. Sorry, the, the causation's the other way around. The, so the word Slav already exists and it's used for people from Eastern Europe. And so many of the slaves going into the Islamic world are coming from Eastern Europe that the word takes over the category. So in, right. in the beginning of the period you would say, oh like I have a Slavic slave. By the end of the period, you would just say, I have a slave, and everyone would assume it was a Slav. Oh, I see. So th- there already was a word Slav, but then all right. the Slavs became slaves. So they became known as Slavs, and slaves would have meant the same thing. Right. Uh, for, any, for any Poles or Russians listening, I'm sure that won't be uh, very uh, encouraging news. I, I think one of the really interesting things about the year 1000 is finding out how many countries supplied slaves to the rest mm. of the world, and then stop. That it's that it's something. So you know the the uh, the the Russians and the Poles that are supplying these slaves, they don't say they don't stay in the slave trade. Same thing is true for yeah. Scandinavia. 
they're very engaged in it and they pull out because they find other things to do. So that's, that's, I think, also something we don't expect. Yeah, and I was I was really intrigued in the book to discover how central the the slave trade was in in this new uh, globalized economy. You you argue in the book that those that remained open to the unfamiliar did much better than those that rejected anything new. So was there a kind of entrepreneurial spirit to this year a thousand? Was there already a, a series of kind of mini Silicon Valleys around? <laughs> Well, people are looking for trade opportunities, right? And one of the uh, one of the things that is just there from the get go is people's desire for new commodities. And the we don't have that many. We have some descriptions of what happens when people from one place meet people from another. A lot of times, the only information we have is archaeological, so we don't know anything about their emotional reactions to one another. But the um, we've got sources from a couple hundred years later, so most historians are a little leery about these, but they are what we have, uh, describing what happened when the Vikings arrived in Canada. And the Vikings are trading red pieces of dyed red cloth. And the local peoples who are in, so the island of Newfoundland in northern northeastern Canada, are so excited by this red cloth, and they just start trading everything they have. And, and the pieces of cloth that the uh, Vikings are trading are get smaller and smaller. They don't have that much red cloth. And it doesn't matter. The indigenous peoples are still trading furs um, and they have lots of different furs. That's one of their, that's their main trading commodity. Uh, they, they're trading furs for this red cloth. So that kind of excitement is something that, um, you know, it's not Silicon Valley. It's more, I don't know, like the first person who brings in um, well, I was going to say there's other examples, macaw feathers, bright red feathers, or chocolate. The first chocolate that people in New Mexico drink, right? They get it from the Maya. The Maya are the only people who are making chocolate at that time. And it's just like, this stuff is fabulous. We have to have this. So that, I think, is something we can see today, too. That that desire for kind of crazed shoppers' desire for something. Yeah, all historians are, of course polemicists in their own way, some of them more gentle than others. And do I detect an element of perhaps a, a, a gentle element of uh, uh, arguing that people who believe in the globalized world have open minds and they do better in 2020, when, of course, in Trump's America, there's a very disturbing division between those who reject globalization and outside influences? And those that don't? Yes, but I will say that my thinking has changed since COVID-19. Because, yes, what you just said was completely accurate for the pre-COVID-19, Valerie. But now, one of the things that I noticed in the year 1000 is that there were checks on globalization that we don't have today. So, uh, you know, just the fact that so many ships were sunk means that nobody could switch like 100% to using Chinese ceramics. I mean, that was Chinese ceramics were um, Mm. fired at a higher temperature than ceramics any place um, in the Islamic world. And they were much more beautiful. The glaze was smoother. They were much easier to clean. They were fabulous commodity that people wanted. Uh, But because it was just the supply chains were not good enough to supply the whole Islamic world or the East African coast with all Chinese ceramics. So uh, local production continued. And that's something I think a little bit wistfully 
about the world we're living in in 2020 that suddenly we find out, oh, you know, it might have been good for us to keep making, oh, let's say antibiotics or let's say face masks. Right. So um, I think uh, I, so, I, you know, one of the things about the beginnings of globalization is that it, it's just getting going. And so some of the forces that we're living in now where globalization is so powerful are not yet in place. But you're not, so you're, you're not making a make America great argument, are you? Because <laughs> no. Uh... <laughs> no, but I, no, I, I'm not making no, because I think um, the reality is that, and I mean, you know, you're talking to a Chinese historian. I've spent a huge chunk of my life learning Chinese and going to China and trying to understand China. Uh, no, I think, yes, it is my, it is a, a view and not um, a, a fact uh, that people who know more about other countries are better able to understand them and work with them. How do you think your book will be received in China, given that it's taken a thousand years, perhaps, for the Chinese to reestablish their role, their central role uh, in, in, in globalized commerce and politics? I think the Chinese are going to think this is fabulous. I mean, that they. I, I think they will not be so happy reading the part about how the people in Southeast Asia who are supplying them, the main thing the Chinese are importing are fragrant woods from Southeast Asia, woods and spices uh, and resins, wood resins like frankincense and myrrh um, that are so famous uh, for us. The, uh, and, but, and, and so the Chinese economy is booming in the year 1000. And I say in the book that they're the most globalized place on earth because in China, people of all social levels are uh, consuming these goods, com- these imported goods. And it has, it has a massive impact on Southeast Asia. As you know, Valerie, there's a huge debate today about um, China's role in, in the 21st century and its impact on democracy. What does your book tell us about the politics in the year? A thousand. Were there any of the earliest seeds of democracy, or was every political system a, a kind of a, a patriarchy, one dominated by a narrow aristocracy or a commercial elite? Well, most of the world is governed in di- in the year one thousand in di- various forms of authoritarian states. No question, right? Either kings or warband leaders. The one place where there's democracy. Wait, I mean. Uh, uh, probably we would maybe not a democracy. We could say an oligarchy is Iceland, where they um, don't have a king. They have an assembly where um, everyone, the leaders, get together. I, I think predominantly male leaders, warband leaders, get together and make decisions. So um, you know, there's and we don't know. We don't know about. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting question. I was going to say we don't always know. I told you we have the limits of archaeology. We don't know how. Um, some of the peoples for whom we have only archaeological information, what their systems of government were. The the Chinese have a meritocracy. They're they're giving they are um, recruiting their bureaucrats through the civil service exams. So there's there's um there's not there's not a lot of evidence for democracy yet. Right. It's a, we're at a moment we've we skipped from fifth century BC Athens up till we need to get up to maybe the 18th century before we start to see um, a little you know a little more evidence about democracy. A couple of weeks ago, Valerie, we had your colleague from Yale, Daniel Markovitz, who I, I think teaches in the economics or the, actually the law school. The law school, who's yeah. A great, 
yeah, who, who's a cr critic of meritocracy, of American meritocracy. So perhaps there isn't that much of a dissimilarity between the 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 meritocracy in China in the year a thousand and the meritocracy in America in twenty twenty. Um, if we could magically bring the people you studied in the year a thousand to life in twenty twenty, I know this is a dumb question, but I'm still going to ask you. <laughs> Uh, if we could magically bring these Vikings and Chinese and all the, the Native Americans that you studied in the year 1000 back to life for a few minutes in 2020, what do you think they'll be most astonished with? And is there anything that they would be familiar with in our own world? Let me start with what would be familiar, because that was the part that was familiar to me writing about them. They're going to they're going to see human beings who have the same desires and reactions and emotions as they have. That just doesn't change. Uh, and, you know, that I can tell you about all kinds of situations where people behave in ways that are completely recognizable to us. What would surprise them? Well, I mean, there's so many things, probably just the fact you and I are having this conversation, right? Sitting here with our computers. <laughs> Yeah. Well, if there's anyone from the year 1000 listening to this, um, it's done on Zencaster over the internet. Finally, uh, Valerie, um, we always ask this at the end of our show, and, and you're a particularly good person to ask because you're so erudite. I know this book took you several <laughs> years to... Is that a good thing or a bad thing? No. Well, in my mind, it's a good thing. Um, I'm very envious of you. Um this book took you several years to write, and you said you you, you sort of implied in our pre 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 broadcast conversation that it originated more than a several years ago. But for people to get a glimpse of your world, everyone should read, of course, your book, The Year a Thousand. But what other texts might they read, especially since we're all stuck inside these days and we have lots of time to read? Uh, interesting history books, what might people have a look at to, to help them understand history and give them a, a perspective on today's world and today's crisis and opportunity? Can, can I recommend three books or do you want one? Of course, absolutely. Three, three okay. is excellent. So two of the books I'm going to recommend were written right around the year 1000. Uh, and one is the Persian classic Shah Nameh, uh, which was translated by Dick Davis. And it is the most famous book um, in Persian, in classical Persian. And it tells the stories of all of the kings of Persia before Persia was Islamified in um, 651. So, and it's, it's a kind of a, um, lots of adventure stories, lots of fighting. Um, there are heroes, there are strong heroes and powerful horses, but there's also uh, compassion and love and recognition of error. So it's kind of uh, like Star Wars or something, right? <laughs> Star Wars minus the stars. Um, right. Uh, uh, my second recommendation is by a woman, which I think is great for parody. Uh, Tale of Genji is written by a Japanese woman. We don't even know her name. Um, we call her Lady Murasaki and it's translated by Dennis Washburn. And uh, this is a book uh, it's a huge book. I, I just was talking to a, uh, a, a Japanese friend of mine who said when people are sentenced to life in Japan, they start reading Genji in the original because it's just going to mm. be 
such a long, slow process. Reading it in English, it it, it took me a couple months. It didn't take um, my whole life. Uh, the uh, but it's a uh, it's a story about the a Prince Genji and all of his assignations and affairs and marriages and uh, the and and what life was like in Kyoto in the court. And it's it's a famous classic of world literature and really interesting, especially in, I was going to say in light of hashtag Me Too. There are points where our hero assaults women, has sex with them, gets up in the morning and looks at them and thinks, oh, that's what they look like because he, he can't see anybody. They're hidden behind screens. And then my last, my last recommendation is a modern novel by um, Paul Kingsworth and it's called The Wake. And the reason it's a project, it's perfect. It's, it's about um, England in 1066 during the time of the Norman conquest. But uh, Kingsworth created his own hybrid of modern English and old English. So when you start reading it, it's just torture. There are so many words you don't know. And there's a glossary, but the glossary has, I don't know, I thought about 20% of the words you needed to know. And then as you stick with it, it grows on you. And it's really a fabulous book. It's such an interesting book. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.